The D2C Growth Show. Hey everyone, uh, welcome uh, back. First Chalk Talk of the New Year, sitting down here with Austin, which I am super excited to be uh, chatting with today. Hey Austin, how's it going? Good, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Thanks for taking the time. For sure, happy to. Love it, love it. So we got about 45 minutes today. We got the first Chalk Talk of the Year, which I'm really excited to be back. Um, welcome to everyone who's rolling in. Um, Austin needs no introduction. He's the co-founder and COO of Morning Brew. You know, we've seen Morning Brew grow from humble beginnings to probably one of the most important media publications of today. And I'm stoked to be sitting here and uh, chatting with Austin to learn more about h- how he built this and uh, and beyond. So uh, welcome. I, I can jump right in. Cool. Let's do it. Love it. Maybe before we talk a bit about Morning Brew, um, I kind of just want to learn about who you are. Um, I think sometimes that stuff gets missed uh, in, this, in these founding stories and these growth stories. You know, what was life like before Morning Brew? Yeah, so I uh, went to University of Michigan, uh, very much was interested in finance. It was a little bit of a herd mentality at Michigan. Everyone in the business school wants to go work in investment banking and finance. And I very much followed uh, the herd and you know, did the very rigorous studying to get a job or try to get an internship or interviews at, at all these banks. And you know, fortunately, uh, during my sophomore year, I, I met this guy, Alex Lieberman, who was writing this. It wasn't even a newsletter. It was a PDF attachment. And we, we connected there and, and we ended up launching, uh, morning brew. And it was a really tough decision for me because I went and I interned at Molus, which is a boutique investment bank in New York city. And I, I do love finance. I just didn't love investment banking uh, for lots of reasons, which I can speak to, uh, if anyone's interested. Uh, but you know, it was, I gave up some security in terms of a job in banking and we had this belief and, you know, in hindsight, the traction we thought we had probably wasn't as great as it was. And, but, you know, we took that leap of faith and, and we got pretty fortunate because, and this is something I talk a lot about, but, you know, it was one of the reasons we got so lucky was because of just timing and when we raised capital, how much we raised, which again, is something I can talk about later, but uh, a lot of the morning brew story and my story is just about luck and timing. Uh, which I think is so much of, of so many different, uh, you know, business ventures. Uh, you know, you can, you can make your own luck, but, uh, you, you can, you can take advantage of luck, but you can't make your own luck. So that's me. Love it. Um, let's just jump into that, that thought you, you shared around kind of how you loved finance, but you didn't love investment banking. Why not? Yeah. So finance is really cool to think about, you know, how companies, uh, you know, finance themselves and how they fund operations and fund uh, whatever else they want to do and how they return capital to investors, things like that. Uh, and I, I love thinking about different types of finance, whether it's venture capital or private equity, real estate, whatever it may be. Uh, but banking, you're a glorified you know, Excel uh, wizard. You know, so like you're really good at Microsoft Excel, but you don't really have any input in anything. You're not thinking strategically. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. And you definitely learn something, but you know what you learn, you can learn the first month or two months and, and then it gets very, very repetitive and you're working 20 hours a day. And, and I, I, I like to call bankers, I hope no one here is investment banker, if you are, I'm sorry, but uh, n- necessary leeches on society. The world definitely needs investment bankers, but they're absolutely just leeches on the hard work that other people have, have done. Um, and so, yeah, that, those are my thoughts on banking. 
Totally. Do you, do you think there's a world where software replaces the need for an investment banker in the long run? Uh, I don't know if soft, I mean, I don't know if software replaces bankers, but I don't think the industry is going to be as lucrative. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think, you know, uh, you know like, oh, I, I'm the CEO of this company and my, my good friend is an MD at Goldman and so I'm going to give him 3% of this transaction. Like the fees are ridiculous and they're legacy fees. And it very much is like insurance, right? You know, like there's the, the Warren Buffett quote. I believe it's Buffett or someone said, you know, no one ever got fired for, for buying IBM. Uh, it's that type of risk averse thing. And no, no CEO ever got criticized for hiring Goldman Sachs. True. But at some point, shareholders have to speak up and be like, you know, you, you have a bunch of, in reality, you have a 23-year-old doing half the M&A process and you're paying 2 to 3% of the acquisition price, it's, it's absurd, you know, and obviously there's a whole debate about IPOs, but M&A, the fees are crazy. And so I don't think software is going to replace it. I mean, at some point software is going to replace everything, but I think in the short run, we're going to see a complete compression of fees. Nice. When you were starting, <clears throat> starting morning brew with uh, Alex at, at university of Michigan, what did the early versions look like? What, what was it all about? Yeah, so the first version, the one that Alex was doing before, um, I, we put together Morning Brew. Was I mean, it was pretty terrible looking. It was a PDF. There was a, a clip art of a bull and a bear fighting that still had the watermark on it because we don't want to pay nine ninety five to pay for the image. <laughs> and but it had the same like it was humble beginnings, but it had the same idea. It was how can we take the Wall Street, the left side of the Wall Street Journal, and make it more engaging. And we spent so much time talking about it. And when Alex and I started writing it, we realized, I think the biggest revelation we had was we could talk about the tone. We could envision the tone. You know, we had this thing where we both knew what we were talking about. And him and I could produce it, one sentence a newsletter, maybe one paragraph a newsletter. If we were lucky, maybe a story a newsletter. But we knew we couldn't create consistently every single day every single story, the tone and voice we wanted. And so that's why we decided to hire writers, which obviously is the best thing we did because we weren't, we weren't great writers. So it looked like crap. It had the, the right idea. It had the right you know, DNA, but it wasn't nearly what it was today. Got it. And why do you think Morning Brew kind of had so much success? I know people look at things, it looks like an overnight success, but I know it's years in the making as, as it usually as it usually goes, but you mentioned timing being super important. Yeah, it, timing was huge, right? So there's a few things. The first thing is that we we started off as a side project, and while that seems uh, like it's not super important, it was actually really, really, really important. And the reason being, there was no expectation. We didn't have a rush. We weren't in a rush to, to grow and make this thing bigger. We were so simple- you know, we were like pretty simple-minded about this whole thing. And, and I actually, I, I, I talk about this a lot as well, which is I think we were the only team on the planet to be able to create Morning Brew. And that seems very cocky, but it's actually an insult to ourselves because if anyone else who had more media experience was doing what we were doing for so long, they would have, they would have lost their mind because what we were doing for media people who've been in the media industry it's so simple. We were creating a newsletter, right? Axios launches. They have five or ten newsletters. 
right? The skim launches, they get, they start doing video and audio and all this stuff early on. And, you know, all these other companies do so much. But for us, it was so much work just to get a newsletter out. And so, you know, just the fact that we were so early on in our career, we had no experience. We just got so lucky in the fact that we picked a product that ended up becoming really, really valuable. And the other thing is capital. In, if, in 2015, when they started this thing, uh, everyone was raising capital, right? BuzzFeed was raising hundreds of millions. Vice was raising hundreds of millions. Skim raised tens of millions of dollars. And if you would have asked me in 2015 who I wanted to be, or you know, I would say, oh, we're going to be Mike.com or we're going to be Vice. We're going to go out and raise 10 or 20 or $30 million. In 2017, when I graduated, it was time to raise capital. The world was a very, very different place. People were... It was doom and gloom in media. Everyone was saying the industry was screwed. And so we took the opposite approach. We followed up all those companies. And I think we were one of the first companies after the pivot to video failed to say, hey, we're going to do the opposite. Instead of raising tens of millions, we're going to raise as little as possible and get the profitability. Mm. So much of that was timing and luck, right? That's not, we had definitely identified a trend. And I think we were really early to that trend. But almost all of that stuff was just luck. Totally. Did you end up raising, like, I guess, a smaller amount of capital, or was it completely bootstrapped? Uh, we raised 750000 Okay, small. Awesome. Yeah. H- how did you know when you guys had pro- or found product market fit? Uh, I mean, at the time, we didn't even think about it like that, right? It wasn't, I mean, we knew we had product market fit when, when, when there was no way to sign up for the newsletter. Hmm. But people were emailing us every day saying, hey, I was looking over John's shoulder or Sarah's shoulder and saw this thing. Um, I, 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 I asked them who it was from. They gave me your email address. Can you add me? Like We were BCCing people. We weren't using MailChimp and we weren't using you know, anything like that. We were just really just, you know, just, and it was growing. It was, it was, it was an email. It was growing a lot. And so we knew from day one at a product market fit. Because we, again, it was so small. It was our friends, it was our family, and then it was our, our classmates. But people were just reading and it was growing by itself every single day. And so we never really didn't have product market fit. Uh, so it, it was just, it was really unique in the way we were able just to, to build it from the beginning. That's super cool. Yeah, I think like when the market's pulling you and you don't even have a way to sign up. It's a good signal that you've got something really interesting going on. Yeah, exactly. I think that was that was a big telltale sign for us. Very cool. And so and so fast forward more to like today, Morning Brew is going after a ton of verticals, tons of different content formats. How do you guys actually think about what verticals to attack, what formats to go after if you're able to share? Yeah, so I, I look at media in a few different buckets. Um, there's not many successful media businesses, but the ones that are successful do three things. They make you better or smarter at your job. They target a passion audience that people care deeply about, or they provide a service for you. So let's go through all three buckets. The first bucket, creating content that makes you better at your job. That's a standard B2B media business, right? So if you're in the retail industry, that's retail brew or retail dive or, or maybe uh, modern retail from Digiday. Um, every industry has a trade publication or something that they cover, you know, that, 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 that uh, a publication covers. That's the first. The second is passion audiences. So that is 
a media industry covering watches, uh, you know, for watch fanatics, or a media industry covering the investing world, or a media company covering humor, right? Things that people are deeply passionate about. And the third thing is service, you know, providing services. And that's more like the points guy telling me which credit card to use. If you don't do that, you're kind of dead, right? There are exceptions, but those exceptions are really, really rare. The exceptions like the New York Times, who's been around since you know, a very, very long time. And so uh, those are the three areas. We don't do the third. The third, um, and I can talk about that, is challenging. So we do the first two, right? We have a B2B business, so we have retail brew covers the retail industry. We target retail professionals, very high CPM ads, very high quality audience. It's all about depth. The second thing we do, and we're launching more of, is passion audiences. We want to take Morning Brew's reader, the modern business leader, put them at the center and say, what are the things we want to create that those people are really passionate about? Things like investing content, like productivity content, like... Uh, you know, workplace culture content, like personal finance, things like that. And so those are the two areas we really care about is, is, is you know, making people smarter at their job or targeting a deep passion of theirs. I love the framework. And I guess my assumption is services is something that just like doesn't scale very well, which is why it's not a focus. It's, it's not that it doesn't scale well, but so like, you know, you oftentimes don't even know these businesses because they're just they're they're just built off the backs of SEO and Google. So one of the most successful media companies in the world that no one really knows about is uh, I can't even remember the name, but now it's uh, whoever owns Investopedia. Dot Dash, right? IAC owns Dot Dash. Yeah. Dot Dash uh, owns Investopedia, and they own a bunch of other companies. And so you know, it's the Investopedias of the world. Um, and so that's built off of decades and decades of SEO, or it's the Points Guy built off of years and years of SEO. And that, that service type content is really, really hard because often you monetize that via affiliates. And to make real money in affiliate marketing, you need to have insane scale and long tail. One piece of content needs to be leveraged for decades. Cool. So, so if we fast forward like 10 years out, what do you think Morning Brew looks like? Yeah, so I think Morning Brew... It's a little cliche, but it's more of like a, let's call it a lifestyle company, right? Where we represent the lifestyle of young business professionals. We make them smarter at their job. We help them invest their money. We help them save their money. We help them make all the big decisions in their lives, and we just make them better professionals. And I think that comes in the way of content. I think it comes in the way of education. It probably comes in the way of uh you know, subscription and community and, 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 you know, commerce. And so there'll probably be eight to 10 revenue streams of different things that, you know, we can engage these people with. Super cool. And, and does having like the power of business insider behind morning brew allow you to just get there faster? What was the thinking behind, um, joining forces? Yeah. I mean, we're doing a lot of things for the first time and, Insider is super helpful in the fact that they do a lot of things, and there's a lot of people we can lean on. They also have a really, really big audience, and one of our largest costs is paid acquisition, and so they allow us to bypass some of that uh, by you know, using their top of funnel to grow our newsletters. 
Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Has it been a good experience so far? I guess uh, that's kind of a leading question to some extent, but yeah, I mean, no, no, but it's been great. It really has been. I was, you know, there, I was definitely nervous, um, but it's really been great. Super cool. I want to jump a little bit over to kind of like the media and the creator space, the newsletter space. You know, I hear a lot online about you know a lot of folks talking about how every company has to become a media company. As someone who's actually built one of the most interesting media companies, I'm curious, kind of your point of view on this and what that means to you. Yeah, when people say every company is a media company, I think what they mean is distribution really matters. <clears throat> what they mean is that we are in a hyper-competitive world where I'm not going to say product is commoditized because there certainly are products that are differentiated, but there are many, many products that serve the same need of your customer. And so the way you differentiate yourself, especially in a world in which faith, you know, there are no new paradigm shifts in the way of social, right? So there's no, like, there's, there's, yes, TikTok's come about, but it's hard to get in touch with your customers. It's expensive. Facebook mm-hmm. ads have, you know, grown, thir- it grows double digit every year uh, in terms of CPMs and costs. And so when you live in a world in which it's really tough to pay for distribution, you need organic distribution. And that's where this idea of every company's a media company comes because you need to connect and relate to your customers. I think there are a lot of really interesting things and we can talk about them, right? Things, the things I find the most interesting are companies that kind of combine commerce and media and all that kind of stuff. So a barstool sports is really interesting. A mischief is really interesting. The PLL is really interesting. Um, so those are things I find really interesting is people who have you know media components. But everyone needs to think about distribution. Everyone needs to figure out how people are going to engage with their content. Totally. What, what do you think Barstool Sports gets so right with the kind of amalgamation of commerce and media through this like big platform that they built? Here's the thing Barstool got right, right? And it's why everyone who's saying, I'm going to build the Barstool for X is wrong. Barstool, um, for lack of a better term, you know, like ate shit for <laughs> 10 or 12 years. They didn't raise any venture money for the first 10 or 12 years. They were just a bunch of people creating content every single day. And Barcelona is the ultimate thing. Like, you know, Dave Portnoy and Big Cat, these people all look like huge celebrities. But they've been at, Dave's been at this for 20 years. Yeah. He's been at this for so long. And so they, they, they just created content. It was consistent every single day. Now, Eric and Ardini's coming as CEO and built a really great strategy and a really great plan. And I think she is one of the most underrated and one of the best CEOs on the planet. Mm-hmm. With that being said, you can't replicate what they did because they just loved creating content and did it over and over and over again for many years. So they were consistent. Now you can talk about all the things they do right now. They have this insane brand affinity, right? They put creators front and center. They built out the right flywheel such that most creators stay for a very long time. They, you know, they do all the, they, they make sure that a creator comes into their ecosystem they can monetize them better than the creator outside the ecosystem. So why, how can they retain talent? Because they do a really good job of selling merch and doing all this stuff such that they can pay creators a lot of money. But at the end of the day, they're successful because the first 10 employees were creating content you know, without any need to raise venture capital or anything for a decade. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love how they put the creator front and center and you know, I feel like there's a risk to some extent around building your brand around an individual in such an integrated way like they do, but the reward 
side of things is you kind of just your brand transcends just this, you know, kind of entity. And how do you think at Morning Brew or even more so, how do you think companies who are trying to become media companies should think about the integration of creators with with their kind of like with how they go to market, I guess? So are you broken there for a second? What were you saying? Uh, like, I, no worries. I love how Barstool Sports like brings creators front and center into how they create content. How do, how do you think others can like learn from that? Or how are you or are you doing anything from Morning Brew perspective uh, to take your creators and, and put them front and center? Like one thing I love that you guys do is your entire team like dominates Twitter. It's, it's unbelievable what, what, what your team does in that space. And I, I'm curious, like what's the, is it organic or is there like a strategy behind this and how can people learn from it? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, we really empower our employees to be active on Twitter. You don't have to be, but it, we, we certainly um, love when they are. And, you know, sometimes we look like idiots when they leave and like, you know, they're, we're sending audiences away. Um, but, but we empower them. And yes, it is deliberate, right? I, I deliberately made a huge effort to be active on Twitter and build an audience there. Morning Brew is deliberately on t- Twitter. We want to own social and we must start with Twitter. I think there's really interesting opportunities on LinkedIn, uh, but, but we are starting to, if you see what we're starting to do, it's slow, but we are starting to emulate, I just said you don't want to do this, but you know, a little bit of like that Barstool mindset where we have Kinsey who hosts a great podcast. We have Alex, my co-founder, hosts a podcast called Founders Journal, right? That's a passion audience. He talks about entrepreneurship. He talks about building businesses and what's it like to build an actual business. So... There is that. Um, you know, we're going to launch a couple more podcasts next year, which I'm really excited about. There's one I'm I'm very very excited about, but we're starting to do that. We're trying to put the creator front and center. But the important thing is you have to have the the infrastructure to do that, or it's just a leaky bucket and people come in and they leave. Makes a lot of sense. Very very cool. Do you think that you need to employ the creator for them to own like a huge asset within the portfolio or can you start to partner with creators outside of, you know, your employee, your employee circle to, you know, extend the brand? Yeah, you have to be really, really careful about investing time and resources into people who aren't employees because it's just so fleeting. If you don't own the IP, it's really, really tough. And I know there is this big emphasis on you know, empowering creators. And I know like, there were some issues at some of these legacy media companies about IP. But I think what people look at is people look at the scenarios. I mean, it's very, it's similar to the music industry, right? It's similar to, you know, like the whole, not to get like controversial, but the whole like Taylor Swift, Scooter Braun thing. Like that whole, it's, you know, when, when a podcast blows up, people are like, oh my God, it's so unfair that the creator doesn't own the IP to that. Mm-hmm. What people who say that don't realize is, there were also 75 or 99 podcasts that failed where the business took the risk on those podcasts and lost money. And no one sit there and says, oh, it's so unfair that, you know, the creator isn't paying the business back for this failure. And so it's really, really hard. Are there times where you can opportunistically do that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, there are times you can partner, but that can't be the main thing you're doing. If the main thing you're doing is just becoming like a network for podcasts not owning any of the IP, the, the value is just not really there. You don't have much value. Yeah. I, yeah. And I've seen a lot of that controversy. I know, I know Barstool sports faced some challenges that, that were pretty public with like the call her daddy team. H- how do you think about kind of 
you know, the value being shared or should the value even be shared between the creator and the business behind it? Is there like a, a right way to do it? Um, you know, the, the caller daddy thing was very public, but that that's inevitable, right? Yeah. It's part of like, it's part of the job. Um, it's, it's not a good problem to have, but it's a good problem to have, right? Like you don't want to deal with that. But the only reason they had to deal with that problem is because they had one of the most impactful and then the highest downloaded podcast in the world. And so it's like, well, you're, they're almost too good at their job. Right. They, I mean, Caller Daddy was so successful. And yes, you will lose people. Mm-hmm. But the thing Barstool, another thing Barstool done a good job of is velocity. Right. They don't bring on one creator a year. They bring on 20. Barstool is failing at more things in a week than most companies try in a year. And so you don't even see these things they fail at because they have a great data system in place. Say, OK, these things aren't working. Let's nix them. So, yeah, some things are going to blow up. And you hope you can retain them, but it's not a bad problem to have that you blew someone up to the point where they can now go out on their own. That's very rare. True. I like the point of view. I want to talk a little bit about like Substack and the rise of this kind of independent writer or newsletter. You know, I've signed up for so many that I think I stopped opening most of them. What's your point of view on kind of Substack and and where, where where that goes? You know, we're seeing such a rise of people writing and the content, there's a lot of good content out there, but I'm curious as someone who kind of is like a pioneer in this space, what, what do you think ha- happens with Substack and, and the independent creator? Yeah. So I think we are in the, not even the first inning where there's one out in the, in, in the, in the baseball game <laughs> with the creator economy. There is so much opportunity. There's all this big hype or there's a lot of talk around subscription fatigue. And I think there are two things to this. I do not think the vast, vast majority of content should be paid. And I think that is really okay. It is totally fine that content is not paid. There are other ways to monetize yourself than creating a paid subscription. In fact, I'd argue that it's really tough to have a paid subscription because that is your best content that you're putting behind a paywall. And so it's, it's really tough. Uh, to, to do that. But I think there's so much opportunity. Um, and I, I see Adam Ryan's here and they, they did an unbelievable job of this um, uh, at the hustle of creating a, a community and content where they built the top of funnel, they built that audience and then you can go paid. Uh, so I, I think it's really interesting. I think it's exciting. I have a sub stack. I have posted to it exactly zero times. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I'm building out the email. I'm up to like 2,000 emails. I just need to find the time to actually write something. Yeah, I can imagine it's hard to find time with everything going on at, at Morning Brew. I, I like the point of view. I actually have like a thread in my drafts I never threw out, um, kind of with a similar perspective that like most content shouldn't be paid and there's arguably better ways to reach a larger audience and monetize. Outside of subscription, which we spoke a little bit about, and advertising, which is kind of low-hanging and obvious, how else do you think you know folks who are just creating and writing should be thinking about monetization besides those two channels? Yeah, I think there are, there are endless ways to monetize. I think the idea of, it it all goes back to what your goals are. Some people write just to get a better job, right? Some people just want a better job. And so they use writing as a way to attract, it's like the new resume. Again, cliche, but very true. We hired someone. I would never have met him 
if it wasn't for his newsletter. I read his newsletter. I think it's great. We've been, we've been friends the last 18 months. We hired him, and he has been an absolute all-star in the few months he's been at Morning Brew. He got a be- yeah, he got what I believe to be at least a better job simply because he wrote a newsletter. I know a bunch of people are doing consulting gigs for venture capital firms hmm. simply because they write a newsletter, they attracted a venture capital firm. People like David Perel and Tiago, uh, they're doing courses. And they're making a ton of money with these you know, cohort-based courses where for a month or two you teach a skill. Uh, you can have a rolling fund like I do as well and become a venture capitalist. So there are, there are limitless ways to monetize that I think are almost all better than subscription. Love it. A lot of good ideas there for folks who are listening to the audience. One more thought on just the kind of the media space. And I kind of actually want to question you a little bit about the rolling fund and angel investing. I noticed you're starting to get in some really interesting companies, but um, where do you think the the big guys go? Like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals, the Washington Posts, are they just too big to fail or what happens to them, you know, taking a 10 year, a 10 year outlook? Yeah, I think you have to look at all three of those differently because they're all very different businesses. The Times is a machine. The Times... It's pretty scary, actually, how impactful the New York Times is. I don't think people are aware of just how, just what they're doing. They are poaching editor-in-chief. Like, they poached Ben Smith, who was the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and his job is to write a single column a week at the New York Times. He mm-hmm. ran BuzzFeed News, and he writes a single column a week. They poached Ezra Klein, Kara Swisher. These are like pioneers in the media industry. And they're just paying them more than they did their old job, and they write a column or they host a podcast for the New York Times. So it's 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 pretty incredible the flywheel the Times has built out. And and someone I don't know if you've seen it, but someone built this really in depth presentation uh, on the Times, which is fascinating. So that's the New York Times. The Washington Post is trying to become a technology company, and so they have Zeus and these other ways to help other tech uh, other media companies monetize. I think that's a challenge because. If I were to pick a customer set that I'd want to sell to, media companies are about as far down as you can possibly get in terms of companies I want to be my customers. So I think it's tough, but I, I think they're doing a pretty good job. And the journal, that's the ultimate B2B play. So you get your every, you know, people's work pays for the Wall Street Journal. So that's a great business because of that. The problem is the average age of the journal is quite old and getting older. And so... Uh, they all have challenges, but th- those three businesses are quite successful. Cool. Really interesting points of view. I, I, I'd love to actually look at that deck or presentation you, you mentioned, if you don't mind dropping in the comments, uh, if you have access to it. Yeah, let me, uh, I'll, I'll pull it up. Tweet. Um, yeah, it's m- mindsafetydisclosures.com. Mines. Uh, I'll, I'll drop it. Okay, sweet. Appreciate that. Um, on angel, on angel investing, you know, I, I saw you recently launched a rolling fund. You mentioned that. Um, what do you focus on investing in? Yeah, so started a fund about five or six months ago now, investing in early stage tech companies. Uh, I try to keep it really general. Uh, you know, I'm not deploying that much capital. It's, you know, quarter of a million to half a million dollars a quarter. And so it's really great for marketing to say, hey, I'm the no code uh, or I'm the uh, future of work fund, but I don't think that's great for generating returns. I don't want to be an index for a specific industry. And so I'm investing across sector. There are a bunch of things I think are really interesting. Uh, I think 
some of these platforms that enable creators are really great. So I invest in a business called Circle, um, and it's a uh, like a Slack for creators. It's a way to connect with your audience, and they're doing really, really well. Uh, So creator economy is one thing. Another thing is direct-to-consumer infrastructure. So I don't invest in direct-to-consumer businesses, but I invest in the SaaS businesses and the technology that helps them become uh, you know, bigger online businesses. And for me, that's a, it's a business where it's really easy to show your ROI with a lot of these businesses, right? If I'm a, if I'm a uh, checkout, if I upsell, help you upsell on your checkout page, it's really simple. If I'm making you more money than I cost, you're going to continue to pay me because I'm making you more money. So that's another interesting industry as well that I, I like to invest in. Do you have any frameworks when you're, I'm sure you get a lot of deal flow and when you're looking at a deal, how do you actually evaluate it? Yeah. So I look for, uh, you know, number one, I look for, you know, founders tackling really large issues and large problems. So, uh, when kind of, when I, when I transition from writing angel checks to running a fund, I'm more focused now on, you know, big ideas and things that can produce venture returns. So number one, it's gotta be a big idea, big ambition, you know, I love running life. People are running lifestyle businesses. It's just not what I invest in for the fund. So first thing is, you know, big idea. Second thing is founders who I think are great, and founders who I think are great are people who very succinctly can articulate their vision and how they get there. So many people are like, you know, I want to do X, Y, and Z, but can't tell you how they're going to get there. So it's. It's what uh, industry they're in. It's the founder and how good the founder is. And then um, a lot of it comes down to you know, traction if they have any. So I like to invest in businesses that aren't you know, pre-customer or pre-revenue, but have shown some product market fit, have shown uh, an ability to either get users or get customers depending on uh, what the business is. Great framework. Did you ever think about kind of that founder market fit? Like sometimes you have all those things, but the founder maybe is like super new to the space or you don't think that matters? I think it depends on the space. If it's a really like uh, regulated space, like a really boring space that really needs to get changed, uh, you know, that needs to be innovated on, I think it's okay to have a founder who, you know, like real estate, right? Yeah. It's okay to have a founder who views things very differently, right? You start to think about like Airbnb or Uber and transportation. You know, you have someone who just refuses to say no and just willing to disrupt the space. But if you have someone who's trying to get into like e-com infrastructure, right? If I'm trying to create a better checkout page or a better, you know, shopping cart experience, you're going to want to invest in someone who worked at MailChimp or worked at Shopify or worked at, you know, if you, if you want to invest in someone who is launching a social app, you know, there are exceptions, but generally people who've worked at Snapchat or Facebook are a pretty good bet there. Uh, and so it, it depends on the company, right? Like the, yeah. that's the, that's one of the problems with venture is because you make all your money on the long tail, it's really tough to talk in terms of generals because you know, the general company makes you no money. It's the edge case. It's the Zoom. It's the Slack that makes you all the money. And those, you know, most of those companies come from pretty strange beginnings or, or interesting founders who don't really fit a mold. 
Totally. It's funny. As you said, venture scale or venture returns, I saw Mike from Greylock like jump into the room. So there had to be some, something going on in the world for that to happen. That's funny. Hey Mike. Um, what's some, you know, what's the most impactful thing that you've taken away from, from some of the CEOs that you've worked with or, or lessons you've learned from them? Uh, I mean, that's, that's the reason why I like doing it is it's just fun to, to watch people. Uh, and, and I like to compare them to, to where I was. And when we started this thing, we knew nothing. And so we were learning on the job. And we were really learning. I didn't ha- I, I, again, like I said, I had a single internship uh, before doing this. And so it's pretty impressive to watch a founder and see, like the Circle founders, right? They, they worked at Teachable, yeah. which is a somewhat similar company. And so to see how prepared they are, you know, I tweeted about this today. When I started Morning Brew, we had revenue projections like you know 18 months ago that match up to what we're doing now. We had employee projections to who, how many we have now. So we could you know, run a model and pick a growth rate and say, hey, this is how fast we want to grow. That's easy. What I couldn't do when I started Morning Brew was actually feel what it was going to be like when we were at 75 employees. I just didn't have that ability. And so founders who can do that, who can really empathize with themselves in 18 or 24 or 36 months, uh, it's, it's really incredible to, to talk to them and spend as much time as possible because they can, they, can, they can predict and see the future. Totally. And so that, those are the founders I love talking to and spending time with are the ones who can really give you and paint you a picture of the future. Yeah, I, I love that. How would you articulate how it feels, you know, being at 75 employees and something that you just couldn't imagine when you were starting out? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you you very much put one foot in front of the other. Um, <laughs> we grew fast, but it wasn't, it, it was it was always fairly linear uh, in terms of growth. So it's one of those things where it's not as if, you know, overnight you 10x user growth or, you know, there was no event that changed anything with a newsletter, just constant growth. And yeah, there are days that maybe grow 5% versus 1%. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, we woke up in June of last year, so June of 2020, and we had 35 or 37 people. And as a leadership team, we sat down, this was during COVID, we sat down and we were like, we don't have nearly enough people to execute on what we want to execute on. And we don't have nearly enough senior people, people who have done it before, who've seen it, who have run it. And so we really, really have been on this path of hiring more senior people who have been there, who have hired the right people. And so we started off last year at 25. We're at about 75 now. and We'll be 125 by end of this year. And so that's, yeah, that's really been, it was really a big change of mindset for us. Very cool. I want to uh, start wrapping up. I have a couple more questions. I, I know you got to run at like about uh, six fifty Eastern. So, one question I've started to ask as I host these, uh, and it's a bit of kind of like a high level or vague question, but you know, you can take it where you want. Um, do you have any like personal philosophies that you live by, or philosophies that guide how you make decisions and how you live your day to day? yeah, I, I, I think the. The one thing that I come back to time and time again is that 
at the end of the day, you know, no one truly knows what they're doing, right? People absolutely are like, oh, uh, you know, people know how to grow a company, right? So if someone has run growth at five companies, not a run growth, but they don't know how to run growth at your company, at your stage, at what you're doing. Every scenario is unique. And so I think so often do people have like analysis paralysis where, you know, they try to just pattern match or whatever. And I very much just try to, and I've learned to trust myself and the things I believe and what I think in. And, you know, at the end of the day, at some point, whether it's now or 50 years, at some point your company's going to fail. And so uh, uh, you know, if you're humble about the fact that you're going to make mistakes, uh, you know, you just have to trust yourself. And so it, it all comes back to like, you know, you, you may get criticized or you may make mistakes, but then they, you're the one who got, or I'm the one who got myself or got Morning Brew here, obviously with a great team. Um, and so just continuing to trust and believe in myself is something uh, I think a lot about, uh, especially in a time where you get imposter syndrome when yeah. you know we started this and had no media coverage or no press coverage, and now we get a decent amount. And so uh, constantly just believing in yourself is really important for me. I love that. It's a, a really a really great philosophy. When you look forward like 50 years out where you're kind of at like the the last leg of your life or maybe 70 years out. I don't actually know how old you are. So whatever you're at the last leg, you're looking far out, you know, what have you accomplished or what have you done to know you've lived a fulfilling life? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty deep question there. <laughs> um, I, I like to, to think that I like to, you know, think about as much um, or, or more about how we work as the work we actually do. And so, you know, thinking about how we communicate with each other, how we get to decisions uh, is really important for me. And so any company I I started or will continue to start, um, just making sure that, you know, everyone at the company leaves the company better. Uh, You know, we're having a bunch of, uh, or some early employees from Morning Brew leave. and, And for me, that's really awesome to be able to have, people who, you know, started Morning Brew who can now start their own companies or grow other companies. I think that's pretty cool and to see and make Morning Brew a place that, uh, you know, can, can like become a, a place where people want to work because it can accelerate and expedite their career. So I think from a, per, a professional perspective, that's certainly something I care a lot about is, is the way we work at Morning Brew and, and the place we can build and people can use it as a springboard for their career if they don't want to stay in media or they don't want to stay at Morning Brew. Cool. Are there any kind of like systems you put in place to help make sure that happens? Yeah, one thing I'm a big fan of uh, is is this book called Traction. Yep. Uh, when, when people, you know, it was, it was recommended by a few people. And at first I was like, ah, it's kind of silly. Like it's a book. I'm not going to run a company by a book. <laughs> but... I'd say like five or six people recommended to me and people I really respect. And by that point I was like, okay, like I have to at least read the book. And so I read it and we don't copy it, you know, page for page, but there are principles, right? Running the company on a five-year plan and a three-year plan and a one-year plan and 90 day uh, rocks. And they're very similar to OKRs, but that cadence of looking at things at different time horizons and different levels of granularity 
over different time horizons, uh, I really, really enjoy. And I think it's a single source of truth. Uh, and as a young founder, that was really helpful. Um, I could always be like, oh, yeah, well, it's not me, it's the book. And so we have to follow what the book says. Uh, and so that's been really helpful to instill that in everyone at Morning Brew. Super cool. I was going to ask you, actually, if there was a book that's had a really big impact on your career. I guess Traction maybe is that book. Yeah, that was definitely one. Another one I love uh, is Deep Work. Cool. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm big into forcing people at Morning Brew to chunk off time. Uh, I personally just can't get things done if I have calls throughout the day. And so I look to stack three, four, five hours, at least two to three days a week just to think and work. And I push people to do that, even if you work in like a sales organization where it's, it's much tougher. Cool. All right, last question from you is, uh, I feel like I got to ask this, especially with what's happened the last couple of months. What's your point of view on Bitcoin? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm a believer. Uh, I, I, I really, I don't know as much as I probably should. I've gotten... I was into it, of course, you know, when it, when it hit 20K a couple of years ago, and I've, I've gotten into it uh, recently again. And I, I think it very much aligns with where the world is going. There's a lack of trust in institutions. There's a lack of trust in news and authority. And, I mean, the Internet and social media have really, really changed things. Uh, I don't think people can truly understand what zero distribution cost or zero marginal cost actually means. And I think people are really struggling to understand these things and their impact on the world. And I think people will constantly go back to things they believe stand for, you know, anti-institution hmm. uh, like, like Bitcoin. So I'm a believer. Love it. Me too. Me too. I've, uh, Oh, we got one from us. Me too. Uh, I love that point of view. Um, we got one more question here from the audience, then we'll wrap it up if that's cool. Um, cool, yeah. Love it. Dealey asked, what formula do you think is applicable to any business where B2B or B2C, uh, whether B2B or B2C, to build high engaging organic audiences? Uh, what formula? So I think the way I'd answer this, and I, I, I'm not positive I interpret the question right, but I think there's this idea that I've, I've tried to champion, which is building in public. I think it's really interesting, especially for B2B businesses, right? Like no one, especially in the early days, actually cares about a B2B business. <laughs> it's impossible. No one cares about a CRM. No one cares about a, no one cares about a button that helps you check out faster. Like no one cares, but people may actually care about the founder of that business and their journey or may care about those decision makers. And so I think this idea of building a personal brand and, and leveraging that is a really interesting one, is a really interesting way to go from zero to one. And so I'm a huge fan of when B2B founders put themselves out there and, and build in public. Uh, you know, when, you're, when your AOVs or, or your LTVs are in the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think it's a really good use of time to make the founder's story public and i'm just waiting for someone to take it to the next level and you know just like you know basically do what gary v does now but from day one and tell their entire story or like uh, gimlet media's first podcast was the startup 
So I'm waiting for someone to take it to the absolute extreme. Uh, but I think it's really powerful. Dope. Love it. Awesome. I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we're, we're at the end. I really appreciate you going uh, into all these different areas. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, thanks for everyone listening in. We'll have uh, another talk next week with Kevin, who is the founder of uh, IMI, which is a pretty cool new D2C brand in the Ramen space. So Austin, thank you. I appreciate it. That's awesome. And Kevin's great. So that should be a great talk. I'm going to come listen to that one. Okay. Love it. I look forward to seeing you there. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you.